Today we're going to be going ahead and continuing in our sermon series through James. And so we're going to look at James chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. If you're going to use a pew Bible, that is page 1012, so almost to the very back of the Bible there. Um, And as we often like to say, just if you are new or visiting, um, maybe you don't have a Bible, uh, we want to give that Bible to you. Feel free to take that home to read it. If you have questions, uh, we would love to keep talking with you, but know that that is a gift for you. Um, And again, so we're continuing this sermon series through James, and we have called it living in a fractured world. In the past few weeks, we've seen how James brings this cohesiveness, this wholeness to our faith. I'm going to go ahead and invite Sydney Son up here, uh, one of our youth, to read that passage for us. And as she comes up here, I just want to go ahead and quote um, the Bible Project on what they say about the letter of James. I think it's a good refresher, um, and it's also just beautifully well said. So the Bible Project says this about James. It says, James gets in your business and challenges how you live. It's a beautifully crafted punch in the gut for those who follow Jesus. But through it all, God is on a mission to restore fractured people and make them whole. And Dan did not listen to that before he titled the sermon series, Living in a Fractured World. So props to Dan on that. But let's go ahead and hear uh, the word of James from Sydney, and then I'll pray, and we'll jump in. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we come to you this morning to hear from your living word, Lord, uh, may it be um, an exhortation, an encouragement, a reminder of the living faith that you've given to us. Uh, Do that through um, this preaching this morning, and we pray that's all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've already said, James Wright, really the whole letter of James is giving us a holistic faith, right? How the way that what we say, what we say we believe in, what we say we value, he's challenging us on actually living that out. And if you were here with us last week, Dan brought the, uh, showed that through his uh, sermon on partiality. And James continues this kind of idea as he goes into the second half of chapter two. And so preparing this week uh, for this this verse, it reminded me of something that was uh, hilarious, but also a beautifully crafted gut punch to myself 10 years ago. Um, it was the fall of 2013. Annie and I had been dating for three or four years at this point, and we were in a rough season of our relationship. And I can't remember the context or what led to this comment from Annie. But we were driving on I-95 northbound. I was going to drop her off at her aunt's house uh, in Palm Beach. We were living in South Florida at the time. And she just, very straight face, like turns to the left and bluntly says to me, Zach, God wants me to marry a Christian. I don't think you are one. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, it, was, it was very shocking, obviously. I didn't know how to respond, uh, which you can tell because this is actually what I said to her. I was like you're the Buddhist in this relationship. And so I can't go into all the details and the backstory of how we got to this point in our relationship. But when we had started, she was Buddhist and she was born in Bangkok, grew up in a Buddhist family. And at this point she had converted to Christianity and she could see the truth about myself, right? That even though I was generally maybe a nice guy, I went to church a couple times, a few times a year, um, I would, say maybe the right answers because I had grown up in church in my elementary school years. She knew the truth, right? That 
what I was saying about my faith was not adding up in the way I lived, right? That I was deceiving myself. And she'd called me out on it, right? So go Annie, right? She's the reason I'm up here this morning. <laughs> um, but Annie was saying what James was saying to, these, to his audience, that our works must match our faith. And James is reminding God's people, or those who claim to be God's people, that if you hold these truths and these values over here, that your life should be consistent and cohere to that. Not to have a fractured faith and a fractured life, but to have a whole faith and a whole life. And at minimum, we could say it's a reminder, right? This is just a reminder of the teachings of Scripture. But for some in James' audience, it was also a wake-up call, a warning, just like I needed uh, from Annie and myself. And I think the same is probably true for some of us in this room today, that we need to ask ourselves, is how I'm living matching what I say I believe in, right? Or maybe I'm deceiving myself, right? That's what James says in chapter 1. Don't be hearers of the word deceiving yourselves, but doers of the word also, so today we're going to look at these two faiths, right? John presented a couple weeks ago on how James gives us kind of two paths. Continuing that theme here, we're looking at two faiths that James illustrates for us in these verses. Now, Dan Doriani, a professor at Covenant who's written a commentary on James, is the one uh, that pointed this out uh, to me, that really the first half of these verses is an illustration of a dead faith. Whereas the second half of these verses are an illustration of a living faith. So let's start in verse 14. Look with me there. I'm going to read that again. What does verse 14 says? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And so the next four or five verses after that is James fleshing that out because he gives this illustration, right? He says, what if a brother or sister comes to you poorly clothed, needing food? And rather than actually helping them, you say, go in peace, be warned. That's useless, right? That person doesn't need our words in that moment. They actually need our help. But then James takes it a step further, right? Because the second question in verse 14 was, can it save him? And so James is now going into the second illustration. If you were to look at verses 18 and 19, he's predicting a response from someone like, okay, well, I have faith, you have works. Right? Someone's fracturing these two ideas. But what does he say in verse 19? It's, a, again, a beautifully crafted gut punch for us who want, to, who want to follow Christ. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So what he's saying there is that even those who are utterly opposed to Christ, like in the spiritual realm, demons, they can say to us they know God is one. They have the right theological answers, but even at least the way commentators describe this, at least they shudder at that. At least they have a response to what they say they believe or what they know. Whereas James is challenging his audience here that you're saying this one thing, but living this other way, you don't even seem to have a reaction to what you're saying, that you believe God is one, right? Commentator uh, summarized it this way, and I think it does a, a really great job. It says, these two illustrations show that not only is the person's faith outwardly useless because he's not helping a brother and sister in need, but he's also inwardly useless because he has no relationship with God. And then James summarizes that, right? 
He says in verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Doriani said it this way. It says a false faith is dead because it knows Christianity, but it doesn't know Christ. And that's the crux of the matter, right? If we have a dead faith, it's because we have a dead heart. Maybe this person has studied Christianity, you've assented to the values and the intellectual truth statements, but having a living faith is falling in love with Jesus Christ, the living God of the universe, surrendering to him and following him. And that's exactly really what I needed from Annie, right? To be challenged in this inconsistency, to be challenged in this fractured life that I was living. But as an encouragement, the good news of the gospel is that no matter where you're at, Jesus says, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast out, right? He gives us hearts of flesh, that he is the one that does the work to change us from a dead faith to a living faith. So let's see examples of that in the second half of this passage, going into verses 20 to 26. If you were to look at those verses there, there's two more illustrations that James brings up. And there's two names um, from the Old Testament that he talks about, he references. He says, there's Abraham and there's Rahab. So if you are, uh, maybe you've grown up in the church or maybe you're new, regardless, is a good reminder of where do we see Abraham. Abraham is introduced to us in Genesis 12, and he really is the father of the faith, right? What it means to be Jewish is to be a son or daughter of Abraham. In the whole Genesis account where it is focusing a lot on Abraham, you see Abraham pop up a bunch in the New Testament, and that's because in the very beginning, when, Genesis, uh, when God makes promises to Abraham, he says that, I will bless you, your descendants will give the promised land. It is through you, Abraham, through your children, will the rest of the nations be blessed. And that's why Matthew opens up the very first words of the New Testament, is uh, Matthew showing us that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. The nations truly are blessed through him because of Jesus Christ coming into the world to die for the world. But the specific story that James is referencing is Genesis 22, where God asks Abraham to go sacrifice his son Isaac, which is hard on a bunch of levels, and I don't have time to really go into that story. But needless to say, I will say, if you go read that yourself, you'll see Isaac does not get sacrificed. Um, but he's referring to this really hard moment in Abraham's life, this testing of faith. And the way that James describes this, right, in verses 21 to 22, it says Abraham was justified by works, that his, Abraham's faith was active along with his works, that Abraham's faith was completed by his works. And then James goes to say, you see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, if you've grown up in the church, that can be kind of a shocking statement. We're going to come back to that. But I want to go ahead and move on to Rahab's illustration. Let's talk about Rahab for a second. So in verse 25, uh, James goes to talk about Rahab, and Rahab was from the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. She was a prostitute. She was a Gentile, so she was not of Jewish descent. And what she does is these two Jewish spies come to Jericho because they want to scout it out before they attack. And she actually houses them. She saves them. She helps them escape through another way. And James describes that, right, in verses 25 as saying, in the same way, Rahab was justified by her works, just like Abraham. So let's go ahead and pause for a second and 
again, address this confusion because if you've grown up in the church or maybe you're familiar with broad, just evangelicalism, you're familiar kind of with the statement maybe of justification by faith alone or just believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. And there's reasons for that. If you were actually to go read Romans 4 and 5, Paul says Abraham was not justified by works, but justified by his faith. So what's going on there? Similarly, in Galatians 3, Paul says, You know someone is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So how do we hold these together? How do we hold these two statements that Paul usually says you're justified by your faith, and James is saying you're justified by works? Well, I think the short answer to this really is that we have to be aware that Paul and James are addressing two different types of issues, two different types of people. We want to be careful not to unload everything from one into the other or vice versa. So James is warning God's people not to reduce faith to just being able to say a sentence. I believe in Jesus. Done. I can go home. Right? And Paul's warning his audience, you can't just reduce your faith to if I do enough, then I'm saved. Right? These are two different issues. And so, ironically, they're kind of both addressing this similar thing, which both Paul and James are basically being aware that it's easy to turn faith into a formula. Whether that's a formula of I say the right thing, I'm saved, or if I do the right thing, I'm saved. But the problem with this is that Christianity is not a formula, right? A formula faith is a fake faith. It's a dead faith. But Christianity is about knowing Christ, a living God. And so a living faith is a response to, as Dan said earlier, a response to the work that Christ has done in us. Right? A living faith is the idea of that we're following a living God and we're living a holistic, consistent, coherent life. Now, maybe if we zoom out, this helps a little bit because if we kind of just focus on this verse of James, we can kind of get, maybe get caught in the trees. But if we take a big picture, 30,000 uh, foot view of the Bible, we'll see that this idea of, of faith and works are always tied together as one whole. Right? So if you think of the commandments, the first four, how to love God, right? the right faith, but then the next back six are loving your neighbor well. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal. Right? So our faith and our works are together. If you think about the prophets, the famous passage where um, Micah says to uh, love, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. That type of phrase is coming out of the fact that people were maybe singing or worshiping or going to the temple they were saying one thing, but they weren't living that out. There was a fractured faith. Jesus says in the gospel, in the gospel of John, if you love me, if you say you have a right faith, you will keep my commandments. You will live in a certain way. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if I have all faith, but I don't have love, then I am useless. And lastly, I'll just say 1 John says, if you say you walk in the light and you have a right faith, but you actually hate your brother, you're deceiving yourselves. You're still walking in darkness. So what James is reminding us here is that our faith and our works cannot be fractured, right? There is one holistic, unified, coherent, consistent life, right? A living faith is where you surrender your whole heart, soul, mind, strength, thought, words, and deeds to the living God because of, out of a response of, the work that he's already done in us. 
it makes me think of if you notice i think it was in verse 23 right it says the scripture was fulfilled that says abraham believed god and it was counted to him as righteous right so abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness but there was evidence of that faith fruit of that faith fruit of that living faith coming out in the way that he lived his life so going back to these illustrations of abraham and rahab notice the mirror that happens right in the first two illustrations of james we see a faith that's useless to a brother and sister doesn't really help them and it's useless spiritually but then in the abraham rahab example we see a faith that's actually faithful living faith towards god as abraham followed the lord and there's a faithful living faith in Rahab as she actually helped those around her. One commentator put it this way, which is just a beautiful encapsulation of these two illustrations. He points out whether you're a patriarch or a prostitute, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, anyone is able to act on their faith. And I would add that everyone is called to act on their faith. So what does this mean for us, right? As I've said um, a couple times maybe in this sermon, uh, I think the first thing we can do, of course, is just spend some time reflecting, reflecting on your own life and asking yourself, am I living a fractured life? Am I, is what I profess to be a follower of Christ actually what I'm doing in my day-to-day life? Am I following him? Am I living out a living faith? Now, I think a natural question could be then, okay, I'm going to live out my faith. What does it mean to have good works? What does that mean, right? Now, we want to be careful. That doesn't mean necessarily, I'll just be a nice person. If we think about what Scripture calls, calls us to do, it calls us to keep God's commandments, right? To actually love the Lord and love our neighbor. So I think a temptation for my own self, right, is like, okay, I go to church. Well, I work here, so I'll definitely be at church, right? Uh, I go to CG. I go to Bible study. And it's easy to kind of stop there, like, oh, yeah, I got good works. Like, I do all these things for the Lord, right? But as a reminder, the things that we structure for our, um, our church family here at Restoration are not ends in themselves. Like, oh, here's evidence that um, I'm good to go. I go to church and I go to Bible study. But we want them to be means to an end, Right? The end is loving Jesus more, loving his people more, loving neighbor more. And we hope that through that structure of community groups, Bible study, coming to church, Spark Events Youth Group, shout out to NextGen if you're in here. We hope that through those means, we fall more and more in love with Jesus and we live out the faith that God has given to us. So maybe more practically, a starting point could be, are you in a CG? That's a really simple starting point. It's through CGs that we have really, it's just neat on staff to see what or hear what happens in CGs, but oftentimes that's where meal calendars come from, is through CGs. It's where prayer requests are known, especially if maybe there's a medical emergency or elsewhere. It's through CGs that oftentimes we uh, make known, like for example, the needs at Loaves and Fishes, which is a homeless shelter we partner with. CG leaders are usually the ones coordinating to provide for that homeless shelter. For some of you, though, maybe you have more room or more bandwidth. I know it's easy to say we're busy, uh, but I would exhort and encourage to ask the the question, 
Maybe you want to do more than just provide and care for people in that way. Maybe you actually want to serve at Loaves and Fishes. There's a few people in here that consistently serve there. I got youth group. We got to do a few events there. Um, but it's a little bit hard because I like to keep the kind of volunteer number like five or ten. So it's harder for big groups. But if you're a family, um, it could be a really great thing to just go ahead and get five of you all and go serve at Loaves and Fishes once a month. Or maybe it's something like Firm Foundation Tutoring. If you've heard of, of them, there's a number of people in here that serve through Firm Foundation. It's where the maybe once or twice a week, you go and actually get to tutor uh, some kids who are in underprivileged areas and really love on them well uh, when there's lots of times in their life where they don't have people who are just present with them, loving them, and caring for them. But those are just maybe a couple examples of where we can think about living out this faith uh, that we profess. For some of you in here, though, maybe you're like me, right? Maybe you needed to be challenged. Maybe this sermon is challenging you, just like Annie had to challenge me on what I was saying and how I was living. And the good news of the gospel is, is not to heap guilt or shame on you, right? But the good news of the gospel is that God brings dead men and women to life. So if you're sitting here thinking, maybe I am living a fractured life. Do I have a dead faith? Well, if you do have a dead faith and a dead heart, praise God for the Holy Spirit giving you that awareness and know that God is the one that changes your heart from death to life. You think about Ephesians 2, right? It says, even though we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. So it's God's work of giving us a heart of flesh, right? Removing the heart of stone so that we can live a faithful, holistic life living faith. So we don't have a God that is fractured. We don't have a God who says one thing and does something different, but we have a God who is alive, who gives us life, who gives us a living faith. And as we profess that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, the same God who acts out of his character, I exhort you all as we go forth this day to live out of this faith that we profess by God's power, by God's spirit, right? Paul says, I worked harder than anyone, but yet not I, but Christ through me working. That is where our living faith comes from, the power of our living faith. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, thank you that you are a living God. This is not just a historical book of dead words, Lord, um, but you say that your word is active, in living, that it pierces our hearts. And I pray for everyone in here that we would respond out of gratitude and gratefulness for the grace that you've given to us to live out this living faith that you've given. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.